listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Thank you and welcome to uh, Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, and I am Leanne Meyer. I'm really excited to do this show. Uh, I know I say that a lot, but I have wonderful guests, and this one in particular. Uh, The title of our show today is called Behind the Murder Curtain. So um, I, I just would like to say I'm very proud to have this week's guest on, and admittedly a, a little bit in awe, um, Bruce Sackman, along with two colleagues, uh, Michael uh, Vacchione and Jerry Schmetterer, wrote Behind the Murder Curtain about doctors and nurses who murder patients. Their focus was within the veteran hospital uh, institutions, but it turns out this happens all over the country and all over the world. So Bruce Sackman has spent much of his career finding, investigating, and helping imprison these sociopaths who murder for sport, literally. He uh, sort of stumbled upon this line of work, but made it his mission, and as a result has added to the knowledge and ability of law enforcement to put these people away for good. So please welcome Bruce Sackman. Thank you very much for having me on, on your show. Appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for coming on. So tell me a little bit, uh, or tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into such an unusual career. Sure. Well, let me tell the audience a little bit about the Office of Inspector General. Many people don't really quite understand their role, but going back to the time of Jimmy Carter, he actually created in every major federal agency an Office of Inspector General. And the purpose of the Office of Inspector General was to ferret out fraud, waste, and abuse in their particular programs. Now, the VA, unlike most of your other federal agencies, is unique because it has its own hospital system. So not only did the VA Office of Inspector General have an Office of Criminal Investigations, which I ran in New York, but they also had an office of health care inspections, which consisted of doctors and nurses, which would visit VA hospitals around the country and do inspections. So from that standpoint, we were a very, very unique Inspector General's office. So I began my career with the VA Inspector General back in 1980, and for the most part, my caseload consisted of white-collar crime, bribery, contract fraud, people stealing medical equipment, periodically drugs being diverged from the hospital, more of a a routine criminal investigations, until one day I got a call that really changed my life. What happened is I'm sitting at my desk, and the chief of psychiatry at the Northport VA Medical Center calls me up, and she says, Bruce, you're not going to believe this. We have a doctor working here. His name is Dr. Michael Swango, and there's a television story about him poisoning people in a prior employment, and now he's working here at the VA. Wow. So there was like a moment of silence. (laughs) Did I hear this right? (laughs) 
Yeah. I hear that we have a doctor at the VA Medical Center in Northport, Long Island, working there, seeing patients, treating people, and there's a television story about him being in jail for poisoning people. She said, that's right. So I hopped in my car. And I brought yeah. one of my uh, agents with me because I was, I was the special agent in charge of the Northeast. So I covered all the VA hospitals from West Virginia to Maine. And I had five different offices that reported into me. But this was in New York, and I was in New York, and we were a little short-staffed, so I thought I'd go out there myself. Mm-hmm. So I go out, and there I meet this young man, Dr. Michael Swango. And he looked like he just came off the golf course. Handsome, tan, wearing aviator sunglasses, smooth as could be. And I asked him, I said, you know, Doc, I just got this phone call. It's kind of hard to believe. But says there was actually a TV story about you and you had spent time for poisoning your coworkers. And very calmly and smoothly, he says, oh, no, Bruce, that's all a misunderstanding. None of it is really very true. And we spent about a half very hour true. talking with him. And he was, you know what, Leanne, he was so cool and so calm. If I didn't know better, I'd want to introduce him to my own daughter. He's a handsome ex-moving doc. It was incredible. But something just didn't sit right. I mean, something just didn't sit right. So I went to the U.S. attorney and I said, you know, I'd like to do a search. I'd like to do, conduct a search of his residence. And she said, well, Bruce, you know, you don't have any probable cause. You don't have any reason to believe he harmed anybody at the VA. Wow. Well, the next thing you know, he's gone. Swangle's yeah. gone. Sure. Left the VA, left the country. Where was he? And did he harm any patients? And mm-hmm. this is what started our investigation of Dr. Michael Swango at the VA hospital in Northport, mm-hmm. Long Island. Because here yeah. we had a television show that was actually a 2020, I think it was 2020, did a television yeah. show yeah. about this young doctor when he was working as a paramedic in Illinois. Well, you know what? Let, let, let me go back, better yet, and give you a whole history of Dr. Michael Swango and take you up to the point where I met him. Okay. Dr. Michael Swango... He attended uh, Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. And when he was a student, his fellow students used to refer to him as Double O Swango, licensed to kill. Wow. Because it's already in medical school. This is as a student. It seemed like every time he would visit patients, patients died unexpectedly. Hmm. But nobody did an investigation, nobody questioned anything. And he was able to graduate. They kept him back a little bit because he didn't complete some of his assignments, but he was able to graduate. And then what happens? He winds up at um, Ohio State University Medical Center doing an internship. Same thing wow. happens there. Patients are dying unexpectedly. So he had to really have gotten uh, recommendations from some of his teachers and whoever else to get that internship, right? That's right. And you Amazing. know what? They weren't such great recommendations either, but he, they, really? they, they took them anyway. Huh. Next thing you know, same thing is happening. 
patients are dying unexpectedly. This one particular story, there was a young student at Ohio State University. She was a gymnast. Her name was Cynthia McGee. Cynthia McGee is driving on campus. She gets in a car accident with another student, winds up at Ohio State University Medical Center. She's improving until she gets a visit from Dr. Swango. Hmm. Next thing you know, she dies unexpectedly. So what happens? The student that hit her in the car, he gets charged with vehicular homicide, but he didn't kill Cynthia McGee. It was actually Swango that killed Cynthia McGee. Mm -hmm. Well, they suspect and they suspect and they do investigations and they can't prove Mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. And that's when he leaves and he decides that he wants to take a little break from working in the hospitals and that he wants to go back and that he actually wants to be a paramedic. So he becomes a paramedic, and the next thing you know, he brings in donuts one day for his fellow paramedics, and they're all getting sick, and they're all throwing up. And he calls each one of them and says, tell me what happened. Tell me all the symptoms. Tell me Uh how you suffered. Tell me everything. And they say, wait a minute. Something's not right here. So they actually lay a trap for him, and he poisons something else, and they catch him, and the police go to his house, and they have all books on, he has all books on poison and everything. So he goes to the trial. He's found guilty. He gets five years in jail. Now, you wouldn't think in the United States of America that somebody who gets five years in jail for poisoning their coworkers could come out and be a physician. Right. I certainly never thought that. Well, so this guy boy, is really wrong. smart and really slick, right? That's right. Because, you know, sociopaths, they're very good at what they do. Mm-hmm. And what he did is he came out, changed his name, forged all kinds of documents. One of the documents he forged was a restoration of civil rights, saying the governor of the state has restored his civil rights because what happened was, see, he's a tough ex-Marine, and he got in a barroom brawl, and he got six months in jail, but the governor said, you've been an outstanding citizen, so here's your civil rights restored. <laughs> and next thing you know, he's working in the hospital again. Yeah. And nobody checked. Nobody checked. So he's working in the hospital again, and he meets a nurse, and they fall in love, and she becomes his fiance. And next thing you know, um, things aren't going that well. Because what happened was the story about his poisonings had come out. So all of a sudden, their re- relationship got really troubled. So this, this young nurse, her name was Kristen, she goes home to mom and dad, and she says, you know, I really love this guy, Michael, but I'm so depressed over the whole thing, and I haven't been feeling well. So she goes to the park. She takes out a gun, and she kills herself. Wow. So you can't blame Swango for that, can you? Well, actually, you can. Because even though the body was cremated, the family kept a lock of her hair. We tested uh, that hair. It was loaded with arsenic. Oh, wow. Swango so you caught him. actually poisoning his own fiance. Right? Yeah. Next thing you know, he winds up at my, in my neighborhood at the Mm. VA hospital in in Northport. And how does he get there? Well, the VA hospital in Northport 
had a teaching relationship with Stony Brook University. Mm-hmm. So he was there in a residency in guess what field? In psychiatry. Psychiatry. <laughs> so that yeah. meant he had to go in front of a board of trained psychiatrists and convince them that he should be in the program and convince them that his civil rights had been restored and all of these things, and they bought into it. Mm-hmm. They bought into it. Why did they buy into it? I could tell you what one of the doctors told me. They said, look, Bruce, you know, this hospital, we're kind of far removed. We have mostly foreign students. Here came a, 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 a ex-Marine white male. We don't see too many of them here. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was a little old-fashioned reverse racism, but we took this guy in, and next thing you know, I get the call. That changed my mm-hmm. life. Mm -hmm. So after I talk to him, he goes to Africa because there's a shortage (laughs) of doctors in Africa. He goes to Zimbabwe. And when he's in Africa, he kills women and children and pregnant women. He really didn't care. Everybody, everybody was a target of opportunity for him. Hmm. So what happened was that he was on his way to the next place to kill people with Saudi Arabia, but he had to come back to the United States first to get his passport renewed. He came back to the United States, and we arrested him, but not for murder, because we didn't have any evidence of murder at the time. We arrested him for what I like to refer to as every federal agent's favorite crime, which is false <laughs> statements to the government. Because he lied on his application when he came to the VA about his arrest. Mm -hmm. So based on that, that was a false statement. And that put him in jail for a number of years. And in that small number of years, gave us an opportunity to make a determination. Did he murder anybody at the Northport VA hospital? Now, like Mm -hmm. I said, I had never done a case like this before in my life. I don't even think I could spell homicide. I had no idea what this was all about. My boss in Washington, D.C. says, Bruce, he says, you got to hook up with a really great expert. He says, there's a guy in New York. His name is Dr. Michael Bodden. Mm-hmm. Michael, ba- not Michael Bodden is, um, well, he used to be the medical examiner of the city of New York and Long Island. Now he's with the state police. You go visit him and tell him the story. So I went there. I told him the story. The state police said, hey, we're not interested. You know, this was in a federal facility. But Michael Barnes said, state, federal, I don't care. He says, if this is a homicide, I'm going. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, I find myself at a cemetery doing an exhumation. Mm-hmm. A backhoe comes in, they dig up the ground, and they're removing a coffin from the ground. I'm looking at my partner. I said, I can't believe we're doing this. <laughs> I've never done anything like this before. Now, before we did this, interestingly enough, we had to go to the families and ask them for permission. Although we had a court order, we could have done it anyway. But could you imagine two agents coming to your house, ringing your doorbell, and Mm -hmm. saying, you know, ma'am, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but we have reason to believe that your dad, you know, may have been the victim of foul play. We'd like to have the permission to go to the cemetery and pull up his coffin and re-examine his body. Imagine getting a visit like that. I can't even wrap my brain around that. It, it was quite an experience. 
but most people were really very lovely about it, as an understanding as can be. And, of mm-hmm. course, we showed them the utmost respect and had the utmost respect for the body and for removing the body from the ground. So we removed the body. The coffin comes up, and the next thing you know, I see Dr. Michael Bodden jumping into the gravesite. Oh, my gosh. And what he was doing is he was taking soil samples. And he says, Bruce, I tell you why we do this. Because if there's arsenic in the body, before we could say that it was an external arsenic that poisoned somebody, they're Mm going to say there was arsenic in the soil. And the arsenic in the soil creeped into the body, and that's why you're finding arsenic in the body now. Right. At least okay. that's what the, the defense would say. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So here I am at the medical examiner's office in the morgue, never been there before. A real cultural experience. Yes, I it is. Play. I've been there once, and I never wanted to go but, back. <laughs> <laughs> but Michael Bonin is such a great teacher. So he's doing the autopsies. I'm standing right there. He's showing me the heart. He's, he's, he's showing me why he thinks these people did not expire uh, as a result of their natural disease processes, mm-hmm. but something external caused it. And then it was a matter of doing the lab work. Right? Now, what we did is the way we identified these patients, by the way, is because Michael Swangle would walk around and visit like anybody he wanted to in the hospital. So we had to look at all the medical records of all the patients that were in Northport VA at the time Swangle was there. Oh, and we had gosh. assembled a team. <laughs> yes, yes, we had assembled a team of physicians and these wonderful, wonderful forensic nurses, something I had never even heard about. But these were wonderful nurses that, of course, trained in nursing and forensics. And they could really kind of bridge the gap between the medical professionals and lay people like myself and kind of relay and translate everything for us, what, what the doctors and the toxicologists were saying. They were wonderful, wonderful. And they helped decide which patients we thought were the best examples of may have been poisoned, that there was no indications to show that the patients expired when they did. And as a matter of fact, many times the patient was actually improving. And what, what Swango would do is this. He'd go visit a patient, pull the curtain around him and the patient, and about a half hour later come out from the room, and then sometime later the patient would expire. Then what Swangle would like to do, he'd love to call up the family and in great detail tell the family how dad suffered through his last half hour of life because he was reliving the experience. Mm -hmm. Not only did he murder people and have that experience, but by calling the family and giving them these details... Yeah. He relived the experience again. Can and it would be like that? an emotional Dracula because he's sucking yeah, right. out of these people who are getting this raw information in the yes. moment. Wow. Right. I mean, these families were tortured and tortured by this guy. Mm-hmm. Right. So we made a determination that there were at least three good examples that would warrant us to exhume the bodies. And we exhumed the bodies. And the problem is now finding what 
we thought were the murder weapons, which was succinylcholine mm-hmm. or epinephrine, finding that in embalmed tissue. You know, it had never yeah. been done before. It had never been done before. But the lab said they thought they, they would take a shot. They would yeah, try plus epinephrine it. could be in the body normally. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Ab- that's right. Absolutely right. But then there was a marker. You know, if I remember now correctly, they were explaining to me that if there were two types of epinephrine and one type of epinephrine that was used, there might be a marker and they might be able to trace it. And they had this new, new machine called a high-pressure liquid chromatography tandem mass spectrometer. Holy cow, what is that? And yeah. they don't worry, Bruce, but we'll be able, we, we think we'll be able to find it. So three cases now where we think, and I forgot which one was which, but it was either succinylcholine or epinephrine was used as the murder weapon. Mm-hmm. At the same time now, remember now, Swango's still in jail for lying to the government. At the same time, the United States, and this was like a gift from the Almighty, the United States signed an extradition treaty with Zimbabwe. So mm. even if we went to trial, and even if we lost the trial, we'd be able to put Swango on the plane and send him right back to Zimbabwe, where they wow. had just indicted him for murdering people in that country. Wow. And where do you want to go to trial? Not in Zimbabwe. (laughs) You think he's going to be a doctor again? Uh, Not so fast, uh, Dr. Swanger. Not so fast, okay? So we indicted him and charged him with the murders, and we told him and his attorney, we said, look, even if we go to trial, and even if we lose this trial, we're going to just put you on the plane and drop you off right on the tarmac in Zimbabwe. Good Mm -hmm. luck over there. Well, I think that helped convince him to plead guilty. <laughs> so he actually pled guilty to the three murders we have, and then later on, he actually pled guilty to killing that young girl in Ohio State University, oh, Cynthia wow. McGee. All right, mm-hmm. so, and that young man who had been charged with vehicular homicide, those charges were dropped. Oh, so when it's good. time for the sentencing... He goes in, in the federal court on Long Island in front of Judge Mishla, and he has to articulate exactly what happened. And he stood up there at attention, like an ex-Marine, and explained to the doctor how he used epinephrine, succinylcholine. I mean, explained to the judge. And the judge said, well, what, what exactly is succinylcholine? And what is epinephrine? And he explained to him and explain how he killed these you people? You might want to say that, how that works, because even though most of my audience are medical people, not everybody is. So yeah, well, what is know, succinylcholine and how does it work? You know, if they want to put a tube down you to intubate you, that's the drug that they use, and of course it can have serious effects on your breathing and kill you if it's not applied properly. And of course epinephrine being adrenaline, Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. I mean, it could speed yeah. up your heart and it could kill you if not applied properly. And that's exactly what, what he did. Yeah. Exactly what and succinylcholine did. is basically, it uh, paralyzes whatever yeah, area. So right. if it's you're just putting it in like the throat, it's just muscles of the throat. But if you're putting into an IV tube, it's suddenly throughout the body. Correct. And that's, um, and that, that was, that was our, our guy's swang up. So 
judge says, I am going to sentence you now to three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. And then he said something to Swango I had never heard before or since. And he said, Dr. Swango, even if Congress should change the law, because right now, all right, there is no parole from the federal government. Mm-hmm. But if Congress should change the law and legalize parole, your parole is denied in advance. Oh, wow. So he is now in Supermax Federal Penitentiary uh, and serving three life terms, and that's where a number of uh, famous terrorists and other people are there. It's the most secure mm-hmm. prison in the United States. But this is a story of an incredible story of a young, handsome, otherwise talented doctor who Mm -hmm. had a fascination with death. And just, I think he's a little different than some of my other medical serial killers because I believe he actually chose that profession so he Mm -hmm. could kill people. I think that many of my other medical serial killers didn't, choose a profession for that particular reason, but some things happened in their lives and, and changed and a series of events that forced them to do that. But he, I think, is unique. Mm-hmm. He, I think, actually chose that profession. Because when you read about his background, he had trouble as a child. His father was a Green Beret in Vietnam and had a scrapbook of disasters. And Swango loved all this stuff. So he was troubled all throughout his life, although yet a very, very smart medical yeah. student. You know, so very capable. You know, one of the questions I often get answered, asked rather, is um, do people choose this profession because they want to kill, or does, does something happen? And, you know, if you, if you think about it, if you're so inclined, so inclined to choose a profession to kill somebody, what profession might you choose? Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. You might choose a profession where there's the power of life and death over someone. And, you know, like police officers have that. And sometimes serial killers have masqueraded themselves as police officers or law enforcement people. Or how about um, choosing a profession where you take an oath to protect and serve people? You know, people are going to say, that person wouldn't do such a thing. They raised their right hand. They took an oath to protect and serve you know, how about choosing a profession where the family and the victim trust you implicitly? Mm-hmm. Listen to that doctor and nurse. Honey, they only have your best interest in mind. Listen to that police officer. It makes mm-hmm. it very, very difficult in our minds to comprehend that these people in these professions are actually trying to right. harm us. You know, how about choosing... I'm I'm going to stop you here for just a minute, but yeah, obviously, wow, a doctor would be the perfect position, even better than a nurse. In the morning, and there's a a huge construction worker, and he's terrified of his little nurse coming over with a needle, because what happens is that the strong and and assertive sometimes become the meek and mild when they're in hospitals. You know, they they don't question, they they just want to get better, and they just let things happen to them. You know, how about choosing a profession where there's a, like a shortage of skilled workers? And I remember one, one particular case we had, and he said, hey, Bruce, do you know where we have to go for nurses? We have to go all the way to the Philippines now to find nurses at this hospital here. And you know what? If we ever make friends with North Korea, 
will be taking North Korean nurses. So you know what? If we didn't do such a great job looking at somebody's background, well, excuse me, but you know how hard it is to fill these positions here? Right. Bruce, we need to take a break here. And um, so we will Um, be back in just a couple of minutes. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with uh, Bruce Sackman, who wrote the book Behind the Murder Curtain, which is all about how he, uh, as an officer of the VA, Office of Inspector General, was able to come upon various different nurses and doctors who were murdering their patients and helped to be able to put them in prison. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes, and please come back and join us. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. If you like what you're hearing on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, consider supporting the show. In the one year since the show started, we've increased our listening audience by nearly 7,900% and our goal to reach 50 countries and counting. Whether you are looking to reach a regional, national, or worldwide audience, you'll have a competitive advantage by advertising on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. It's the perfect platform. Contact senior executive producer Tacey Trump today at 480-294-6421. That's 480-294-6421. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time opinions options answers voice america health and wellness you are listening to once a nurse always a nurse exploring the world of nursing with host leanne meyer to reach the program today please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. 
Welcome back. This is Leanne again, and this is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. And we're talking to Bruce Sackman, who was one of three uh, authors of Behind the Murder Curtain, uh, talking about doctors and nurses who murder their patients. Um, I really want to encourage people to go out and get the book. It is excellent. I picked it up and couldn't put it down. And and literally tried to put it down a number of times and couldn't do it. So uh, I can strongly encourage it. Uh, Bruce, could you tell us a little, this was a doctor that you've just been talking about. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the nurses that um, yes, you absolutely. got absolutely. to? Now, a nurse serial killer who is at the Bedford, Massachusetts um, uh, VA Medical Center, her name was Kristen Gilbert. And this is the story of Kristen Gilbert. Uh, three nurses who were heroes here, absolute heroes, came forth to management, and they said, we think Kristen Gilbert is murdering patients. And the management completely poo-pooed it. Mm-hmm. They even called the Inspector General's Office of Healthcare Inspection, and our own healthcare inspectors couldn't prove it. But these three nurses, to their credit, would not stop. And Mm -hmm. finally, they contacted my office, and we conducted a criminal investigation. And we determined that Kristen Gilbert may have killed as many as 35 veterans at the Northampton VA Medical Center using epinephrine. Hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because my vision of a serial killer had always been someone that looks like Charles Manson, you know, kind of crazy mm-hmm. looking with a swastika on his forehead. Or something. <laughs> right. That's what I always thought a serial killer looks like. Here comes a typical soccer mom. Mm-hmm. She had two kids. She was married. But she would murder people. And her reason for murdering people was something that we referred to as Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Mm-hmm. And she used to love the excitement of a code. Because when you read her evaluation, you would see she was an okay nurse, except when it came to coding. When there was a code, she was fantastic. She would take charge. She would bark orders to the young interns who were scared out of their mind. All the doctors said, you know what, if I ever coded, I would want Kristen Gilbert there. (laughs) She's so good. She takes charge. But, of course, she caused the code. Mm -hmm. And what happened was that she was going through a separation with her husband And the VA police was actually required to respond to every code where her boyfriend was. So during the codes, she was actually sort of playing around with her boyfriend right there while she's working on the patient. Wow. And she caused all these codes to make herself like a hero. Mm -hmm. Just like the fireman who burns down the firehouse Mm -hmm. and then shows what a great fireman he is putting it out. She actually caused the code. And we Mm -hmm. went to trial and that case lasted six months. We were in court every day for six months. And she was found guilty. And she also got multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole. Mm-hmm. Another nurse in the book is Nurse Richard Williams. Nurse Richard Williams is suspected of killing as many as 60 people at the Harriers Truman Medical Center in Columbia, Missouri. The problem with that particular case is we were prepared to say through lab work that the murder weapon was succinylcholine, which we had spoken about with Swango. Mm-hmm. However, 
He gets indicted on 13 counts of murder. At the last minute, the lab said, you know, Bruce, we can't really that it sucks in O'Calling. So the prosecutor said, well, Bruce, if the lab can't say for a fact that it sucks in O'Calling, we're not going any further with this. And the case never went any further. So he's the only person in my book that's an alleged serial killer. But I am convinced, and it's a long story why, but I am convinced that he actually did murder as many as 60 60 people. And do you, is he still able to work then as the nurse? No, no. He's okay, completely good. out of the medical field, the nursing field. Good. He's still alive and well in Columbia, mm-hmm. Missouri. So he and can I'm find other ways to do this. Maybe one day the science will get better and we'll be able to revisit that case. Mm-hmm. But that's the one that got away and it still sticks in my craw and always so be- will. Because the prosecutors didn't complete the case, <clears throat> it doesn't come under um, whatever it is, so they can't uh, charge you twice. You can't be tried no, for the no, same. No, 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 no. They, they, they could still charge him again because if he went to trial and found not guilty, then they couldn't. But mm-hmm. because they dropped the charges because of the science, he could still mm-hmm. be re- retried, definitely. Yeah, that's great. So we still have um, another shot at him. Yeah, one uh, one of the things I was thinking about um, is that this sounds just terrifying to a nurse that you could be working with somebody who is actually creating this kind of havoc. You might have suspicions, but you don't really know for sure and you don't know what to do about it. So I know that um, some of the people that have come forward as whistleblowers got really tough treatment from the people they told, their superiors or whoever else. Um, I'd like to know what what can nurses do or law enforcement do to be able to um, catch these people before either they get going too far or, you know, whatever. So I know you have a, a protocol, and I'd like to hear about that. That was the exact same question we were asking ourselves at the VA, Leanne, where we were saying, how do we spot these people before they kill? You know what the problem is? They kill so many people until they first even come on the radar screen. Mm-hmm. And some of these serial killers have killed so many people when they finally agree to plead guilty and you ask them, how many people have you killed? They can't even remember. They killed right. so many people. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So what we did at the VA, we put together something we call the Red Flags Protocol. And what the Red Flags Protocol, and we came up with 26 different items on the Red Flags Protocol, was to educate our staff on what to look for and how to make these cases. And almost every case around the world starts the same way, starts like this. Every time Nurse Bruce is on duty, the death rate goes up. Mm -hmm. Nurse Bruce takes a vacation, the death rate goes down. Nurse Bruce is out for two weeks, the death rate is fine. He comes back to work, the death rate goes up. Now, Mm. that automatically doesn't mean he's a serial killer, but Mm -hmm. all of these cases around the world start that way. The problem, of course, is how many people have to die Mm -hmm. until you start to look at those numbers and realize that. Mm -hmm. So it's almost always the courage of the nurses who work on the ward, who realize that and bring it forth. And I say to my nurse heroes out there, 
there's safety in numbers. If you could co- come forward with a couple of other coworkers and point mm-hmm. this out, that usually makes a huge difference. But right. if it's you and you alone, look, management is going to say, management's going to ask you something like this. Excuse me, nurse. Um, did you actually see this nurse harm anybody? No, no, I didn't see any. I didn't see her harm anybody. Well, how long has this nurse been working here? I mean, we never had any problems with her before. Why do you all of a sudden think that, that this is happening just based on, mm-hmm. on these numbers? And yeah. how my whistleblowers will traditionally have a hard time, even when they have doctors supporting them, because no management wants to hear that there's a serial killer in there. Yes. That's the yeah. last well, thing they want to hear. Not only they don't want to hear it, but they don't want the public to hear it. That's right. They don't want anybody to hear it. And even their coworkers would say to them, what are you causing trouble? You know, what mm-hmm. do you want to get the cops in here? You want to get the state right. in here? You know what's going to happen? We're all going to lose our jobs. Yeah. Or this nice nurse has <clears throat> a husband and two children, and how could you dare, you know, get her into trouble? That's right. That's absolutely mm-hmm. right. And then what often happens is that management will support the person that's being accused because yeah. they don't want to be sued. Mm-hmm. So they actually will support this person and hope and pray every night that the person finds wow. a job in another hospital. And by the way, we won't say anything to the second hospital about what yeah. happened in our hospital. Yeah. We'll just confirm that he or she worked here, and that's that, and just, just let them go. Now, with Nurse Williams, people went to the management and Nurse Williams, and they said, well, oh, we have this great idea. This is what we're going to do. We're going to assign a nurse to work along Nurse Williams, and that's what they did. Well, when mm-hmm. the second nurse was there, the death rate flattened out. Nothing but happened. Sometimes the second nurse had to take a few days off, needed a vacation, yeah. and had to do something for the family. Guess what happened when that second nurse wasn't there? Yeah. The Let's keep going through the protocols. Yeah, because uh, I want to make sure you get through as many of these as possible. We've got maybe okay. five minutes, five, six minutes yet. Okay. All righty. So anyway, like I say, it almost always starts with uh, statistics. And the fellow employees reporting the allegations eventually to the investigators because management just kind of rejects them. Don't expect to see any eyewitnesses to the crime. You're mm-hmm. not going to expect to see that Bruce Zachman murdered this person. But you say, you know that nurse Bruce, he was the last person with the person with the with the victim. I mean, he was there alone. He went behind the curtain, pulled the curtain behind him, and then the patient expired. Mm-hmm. And that's about as good as it gets. And then you'll find that the murder weapon is usually a weapon that I uh, I call it a weapon. It's really a pharmaceutical that's available right there, usually on the crash card, and it's not necessarily signed out because it's used for emergency purposes. And um, that's more often than not your murder weapon. Um, Mm. You find, if you're lucky, that syringes and IV lines and feeding tubes are most likely the portals of entry if poison is used. I mean, in, the, in, in my cases, it's very interesting. We would look for the EKG strips, which should be in the charts, and the EKG strips were, EKG strips were missing mm-hmm. because, you know, that was sort of a roadmap to tell us what happened when. And lo and behold, in our suspicious death cases, and this is before electronic me- medical records, but 
the EKG strips were gone. They were missing. We also find that more often than not, these killers perform best in emergency situations. You know, we used to call them code junkies. They love the excitement of the code. We find that they're often like charming and friendly, yet they have a lot of difficulty with close personal relationships, going through divorces, all kinds of other personal problems on the outside. Sometimes there's also something a little odd with them. They may display a questionable dress code or mannerisms. And I tell you something I've seen in every one of them. They all have great written reviews from their supervisors when it comes to codes. Every one of them gets an A-plus for responding to a code. And the rest of their nursing skills are, "Ah." Then when you start to do a real deep-dive background investigation on them you'll see that they had questionable incidents and recommendations in their prior employments, which was usually not disclosed. Mm -hmm. That really is very, very common with a number of these people. And you know know what happens sometimes is that nurses and the staff start talking, and the patients hear this. So, you know, the nurses would be maybe joking and say, oh, she's the angel of death. And in the case of Williams, one patient actually ran out of the hospital, says, angel of death, I'm not staying here. He ran out of the hospital. The VA police ran after him, brought him back. That night he died unexpectedly. Uh, That's unbelievable. uh, Um, Often, and now now with the Internet, almost inevitably we will find that these killers will research the particular drugs that they want to use on the Internet or in the library. Swango had a library of poisonings. Gilbert, mm-hmm. when we went to her house, there was a book on epinephrine hmm. and how epinephrine could be used as poison. That page was actually dog-eared. Oh, that's wow. terrific evidence. You know, yeah. Really, really terrific evidence. Um, and the patients, they all have the same defense. I mean, the, uh, the killers all have the same defense, that the patient died as a result of their natural disease processes and mm-hmm. management loves that. They love that. They, they buy into that as well. And they will never, ever show remorse for any of their victims. And it's interesting because once in a while, a patient will survive one of these attempts. And 2020 did this very interesting story where they interviewed one of Swango's patients in Ohio. And she said, Dr. Swango came in the room, gave me an injection, and waved bye-bye. Then they went to a patient in Africa. He says the exact same thing. Dr. Swango walked in my room, gave me an injection, and waved bye-bye. And it's incredible how these people will crave notoriety. I mean, Swango went on 2020. He went on a whole bunch of shows. Oh, my gosh. Kristen Gilbert, every day during the trial she would actually get the local newspapers and read every story about her from top to bottom. Wow. Not showing any remorse. They never show any remorse. And then what we find out is that many of these people, they don't limit their killing to the hospitals. You know, um, they have attempted to kill um, neighbors, fiancés, girlfriends. Mm -hmm. Everybody after a while becomes a sure. uh, potential target for them. Well, I know so one of the people you talked about of, when he, of he talked to the judge that we have in there and that we've been teaching to nurses and medical professionals. 
and to give them the courage and some tools to come forward because they're the, they're the first line. The nurses mm-hmm. are really the first line, and they've shown incredible courage. They're all really my heroes. Without yeah. them, I would have never made any of these cases. Yeah. Um, one of the people, the judge asked why he had done so many of these or why he continued to do these murders. And I think he said something like, well, I believed I was doing the right thing because nobody had caught me. So he thought God was on his side. Yes. That, Donald Harvey. And yeah. this is almost a direct quote from him. Donald Harvey, who was a VA and a private sector nurse, said something like, after I killed the first 18 excuse me, the first Mm -hmm. 18 people, and nobody questioned it, I actually thought I was ordained by the Almighty himself to do this. Mm. You know, it's not totally irrational. (laughs) You think about it, if you kill 18 people and nobody even questions it, maybe you could convince yourself that you're ordained by the Almighty to do something like this. Well, even if you're not, um, you know... uh, You think of traditional serial killers, you think maybe six, seven, eight people they kill, Mm-hmm. Amateurs compared to medical serial killers. Yeah. Dr. Harold Shipman oh in England, gosh. close to 300 people. Um, wow. Nurse in, in New Jersey, nurse, nurse Cohen, about 60 people. Swango, somewhere between 60 and, and, and 100 people. Gilbert, at least 35 people. I mean, the numbers are just incredible. And, and those are the ones you know about. It takes a long time to realize they're killing people. Yeah. Yeah, so those are like the ones you actually know about. Um, yes. Yeah, so we've point. got, what What if, um, what are the things that you <clears throat> really want nurses to know and understand? I know that, that you developed a real appreciation for nurses uh, during the course of doing this. The nurses that are doing good jobs, you never hear about them. That's right. That's right. And the overwhelming, you know, listen, I still do investigations at hospitals. And periodically, I get in, involved in investigations with nurses diverting drugs or doing some other wrongdoing. But almost inevitably, it's the honest, hardworking, dedicated nurse who brings these matters to our attention. And mm-hmm. without them, I wouldn't be in the investigation business. They're on the front lines. So I say thank you. Thank you to these people who have the courage to spot these things and make their hospital better. And I know it takes a lot of courage. I really completely understand that. But please mm-hmm. continue to do that. Please continue to, to get support and don't give up because in the long run you could really save lives. What about like documentation? You know, if they're noticing something but nobody's, you know, taking them seriously, is there some way they could yes. you know, um, document kind of what they're seeing on this night at this time? Grab, you know, everybody's walking around with cameras now and, and, and cell phones and recorders. And um, there's more information now than ever. You know, I mean, now we have Pixis and Pixis C2Safe, and we have all kinds of records of who takes drugs out, things that didn't even exist many years ago. So there are a lot of records available. We're always working closely with the pharmacy. The world of electronic records is a lot different than it was with, with, with Swango and, and Gilbert. Mm-hmm. But I ask all my nurses to just be alert and aware and get somebody to verify what you're finding and then come forward. Because I tell you this, there are whistleblower laws out there to protect people. And most of the time in most of the hospitals, whistleblowers are really protected. In my particular hospital where I work in Manhattan, 
we treat whistleblowers like Fort Knox goal. Because right. without them, we wouldn't know what's going on. And even if they're wrong, sometimes they're wrong. You know, uh-huh. sometimes we get a call on a hotline, and it's really off base. And sometimes we get a call on the hotline, and it's spot on. Yeah. Spot on. I had one just the other day about a nurse that was diverting drugs from another nurse who realized it uh-huh. and saw it and said, I'm concerned uh-huh. about my patients. They're not getting their pain meds. You know, mm-hmm. so... Um, I, you had I, mentioned I, yeah. once too well, that they go on the night night shift forward. a lot, so that okay. they are they are often the only person. You're absolutely right. Yeah, we're actually right. coming to the end here. I hate to say it because I hate it when it happens, <laughs> but uh, we're coming closer to uh, the end of our program today. And I really want to thank you so very much for taking the time to come on and talk about this. And uh, if, if you've just tuned in now at the end of the show, I really want to encourage you to check out this book. I think that, um, do you do uh, like... Um, uh, the talks do you do you come to yes, organizations around the world i've been to dubai i'm going to london and in, in wales in, in a couple of months so i love speaking about this and meeting people and talking about it you know Great. the book has a website it's behind the murder curtain.com you could contact Great. me you know i'm i'm available i'd answer questions i come out i make presentations i i love meeting people and talking about this right. all over the world Great. And that's how it's going to change. It is more and more people that are aware of it. So thank you very much. And um, I just wanted to have an appeal uh, based on this. Uh, I know that um, Bruce had said in his book that it's not possible to praise nooses too highly. And I absolutely agree. Um, As I often say, I love nurses and I know that I'm not alone. Um, I've said from the beginning of this show that my goal is to promote, encourage, and support nurses. I'm looking for others who feel the same way. I want your ideas on how to do that, names of people you think would be good to be on the show, topics you want to hear about, and people you want to sponsor or you think would want to sponsor. Maybe some of you are in that position where you could do the sponsoring uh, to uh, sponsor the efforts being made toward helping nurses. So contact me at leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's L-E-A-N-N-E. Voice America, all one word, and at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and sharing these shows with your friends and cohorts, and we will look forward to talking with you next week. Thank you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week.